Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you look at any successful property investor that's made a lot of money from property, is they're just action takers and they just get on with it and do it. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Chris Gray and Jack Henderson to learn more about the unplanned joint venture Gray found himself able to do, how Henderson has been able to grow a portfolio at the young age of 22, the benefits of collaborating to get your foot in the market and how they can help you achieve your property dreams. As a host on Your Property Empire on Sky News and an investor since the age of 22, Chris Gray has been investing for many years. I guess from personal property investing, I started investing at the age of 22 in the UK. I kind of semi-retired from property at 31 out of Deloitte's and um, now 48. So the last 15 years, I've been teaching people how to invest in property and then set up a buyer's agency just over 10 years ago actually doing it for people because not everyone wants to learn. Some people would rather pay just to uh, get it all done for them. Jack Henderson, on the other hand, while only 22, shares what his background is. I'm a, a property investor come buyer's agent for the property portfolio worth uh, $4 million. And uh, it's funny enough that Chris was actually my mentor up until this point of my journey. Thinking back a few years ago, Jack explains how he actually met Chris. I met Chris at a seminar um, three or four years ago and then the way we sort of grew our relationship was he, he did a charity auction um, for a charity where you could win a lunch with him. So I won that, uh, went to the charity lunch and then the relationship sort of grew from there. With many changes to the markets and a tighter lending policy, Chris shares the story of a deal he did some time ago that would work today. Back in probably 2000 and oh God, what would it have been? probably even 99 or, or 2000 or something like that, I had a friend of my flatmates in the UK and he'd read an article in the Financial Times to say Australia is a great place to buy property. So he decides he wants to buy property. And that just goes to show how stupid things are, that people make stupid investment decisions. And it wasn't to say Australia is not a good place to invest, but people will literally read one article and decide to invest somewhere else in the world. So anyway, this guy was going to spend about $300,000 buying a property and because he was a foreigner, he couldn't borrow any money, so he was going to pay cash. And uh, my flatmate set me up with him and said, oh, can you give him a bit of guidance? And I said, look, you don't really want to do it for cash, so how about we do something together and you put up the deposit, I then put up the 80% mortgage, I then find the property, do all the work, and let's just say we'll give you, say, 6% interest on whatever money you put into the deal. 
and I'll maybe get 6% interest for all the negative gearing that I put in, and then we'll split the proceeds 50-50. So ideally, we'll keep the property for one property cycle, so 7 to 10 years. When we sell it, we'll both get 6% interest on our money and then split it 50-50. So the advantage to him is is he goes and buys a property and gets an 80% mortgage in my name, which he couldn't normally leverage. So he only needs to put down 20% of the money. And effectively, I'll then only make money if effectively the property grows in value. So I get to buy half a property for no money down. He gets to buy half a property for no mortgage down. And effectively, it's a win-win situation. So we bought that. And then I was speaking to Jack and we had a few clients. So some of the clients had money and they couldn't get another mortgage to then keep repeating. And then some clients effectively were high income and they could get the mortgage, but they couldn't do the other side. So we thought, why not try and put something together where we duplicate what I did 10 years ago? Gray expands on this too, explaining how exactly deals like this are implemented to work today. This is something that literally is a couple of months old. So we've only just started investigating it. So we basically put it out to our database and said, right, okay, are there people out there that have got cash but can't get a can't get finance? And are there people out there that effectively can get finance but haven't got the deposit? And then we effectively surveyed them and then tried to get all their objections and things like that to doing this kind of deal. And the whole thing is, is if you can do both sides of the deal. So basically, if you've got a deposit and you can get a mortgage, you'd never do this because with a joint venture, the risk is, is you're relying on a third party. So my golden rule is always do a property 100% yourself if you can do it. But for both these people is if you can't get a mortgage now, it might be two or three years till you can. And if you want a deposit in Sydney on a million-dollar property, that's got to be 50, 100, 150 grand. That's going to take people a lifetime to try and save. So we're literally just trying to create the uh, kind of connect all the dots and put something like that together based on what I did a long time ago but obviously kind of getting the banks on board and getting proper legal agreements as well. In a tough environment, Henderson shares that the main goal isn't about targeting a particular state, but finding individuals that can put in both a deposit and apply for a mortgage loan. I think the way it works um, and the way it works best, I think at the moment is there is so many amazing buyer opportunities out there and, and you cannot get the finance. So for someone in my position, um, my lending capacity is virtually tapped at the moment on the income I'm on, but I've got cash and I've got a little bit of equity set aside sitting there. So the opportunities in the market are quite good. If I can match with someone that can then get the, the, the mortgage because they've got a high income and haven't got the deposit, it's a win-win for both sides. But again, it's still targeting that, that blue chip property in, in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, so we're going to get the growth over the long term. Gray expands on how they incorporate exit strategies, ensure their clients have the funds to sustain the property and the type of incentives they use to make sure clients hold up the end of the deal. So with any joint venture, you need to look at the worst case scenarios. And the worst case scenarios that I thought when I did my deal was we're not speaking, we're other ends of the world. And so effectively, you need the agreement to cover all of those those type of things. So the main thing is, is looking at all the risk factors, which is what helped us when we surveyed the, the database to say, right, okay, what is your issue and what would stop you from doing the deals? And this is where we thought is if you go and buy a property in a speculative area, then that's going to seriously risk the whole deal. So um, there's nothing to stop people out there, the listeners, doing whatever deal they want to do. But we just thought, if we're going to put our name to it, let's stick to the blue chip suburbs because we know historically then they've the growth has always been more consistent 
and in the downturns, they're, they're less likely to go down. You're also more likely to get a tenant. Sure, the entry cost is going to be a lot higher, but effectively you're buying quality. So you don't want to buy something that could be up 50% one year and then down 50 the next year. You, you basically want that consistency. And then effectively you can work in there to say, right, okay, we thought for the person putting up the mortgage, they also need to put up a year's worth of negative gearing. And each month they've got to top that up. So they've got some skin in the game as well. And then effectively, as soon as they stop paying, that means you've literally got a year to then try and sort things out. And the best way is to have financial penalties to say, well, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, you're going to get less of the capital growth. So if you fail to do it, and maybe you're six months behind, effectively, it could go from you getting 50% of the growth to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. And remember, the person that's holding the mortgage is generally going to have a pretty uh, high-paying job, and so they're less likely to want that black mark in their name. So you try and put every incentive for everyone to do the right kind of thing. Henderson, answer this. Talking about a project he and Gray are in the process of going through using this type of strategy. I'm going through one at the moment um, with myself and Chris has found the, the second party, and it's exactly what we've spoken about. So I've got the deposit sitting there with the equity, um, the other party's got the income, but but no capital to put up front, and now we're out searching for a property. And the types of opportunities he's seen, and in what states? The areas uh, I buy in personally, um, mate, the, the price really hasn't come off that much. You might have five buyers in an open now, not 15 like you did 12 to 18 months ago. Um, I'm not looking for the next hot spot or the next you know spot you're going to make your next 10% growth over the next 12 months or 18 months. I'm looking at the past 30 years and what the suburb's done and the property's done and, and it's a pretty good indicator of what the next 20 or 30 is going to be. Um, and the demand in, in the suburbs, like you could use your Bondi's, your, your Piccolo Valley's, mate, it's, it's still very, very strong and quality property is still selling very quickly. But how exactly do they source these properties and approach these vendors to negotiate a better property price? As Jack said is when you're in the good areas, generally there's still no properties for sale. So there's just not that much supply because a lot of these areas are only three stories high. And so there's not many people transacting. And so um, in these areas where they've held them for 10 to 30 years, they haven't got a massive mortgage. They've still got a job. They're not under financial stress because they've got, um, uh, there's low interest rates at the moment. And so you've still got not many coming on the market. And effectively, sure, the buyers are down, but there's still enough buyers. And so what you find is the properties that tick 10 out of 10 of the boxes. So they're close to the beach, they've got the parking, small block uh, off the main road. Generally, they're still selling very, very well. So maybe it's selling at a regular price rather than a 5 or 10% premium, um, but you're still getting good money. And it's the ones without the parking in the wrong areas, the wrong size bedrooms, the main roads, things like that. They're the ones that may be down 10 or 20%. And that's the thing that gives you the mixed market. So I find in, in no matter what market you're dealing with, there's never any properties. And good times, they sell normal price. And in the boom times, then they sell maybe 5 10 15% over. With property prices being so high at the moment and the ability to get returns through other property choices, such as commercial property, Henderson explains what actually makes these type of joint venture deals more attractive than other projects. Look, I, um, I guess it comes down to your risk profile as well. I mean, I'm a very conservative investor and I, I know Chris is as well as much as it might look like it. These properties are true and true. I mean, you look at the last 30 years and they've performed, so it's a pretty good indicator for the next set that they're going to do the same thing. 
there is always different paths and there's always make, people making money down these different paths. Sure, there's people making money in commercial, there's making, people making money in development. But I guess if you've never done it before and you're a first-time investor or you don't have that risk profile, it can be a very risky and very daunting thing. So I guess it all comes down to personal personal um, um, preference. But again, if, if you've got a good income um, and you can, you can get a mortgage but you don't have the deposit and you, the two people you match with have the same sort of mindset that you want a conservative approach and you want to know that in the next sort of 10 to 15 years or 7 to 10 years, whatever it may be, this property is going to perform. I think it's a pretty safe bet. And again, you've only got 50% risk each person. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into the details of the first joint venture Chris Gray found himself in. In the deal I originally did, effectively that deal could be done anytime. So whether it was a property, say, 10 years ago or one today, effectively the numbers are, are pretty much the same. Why they believe joint ventures is a great way for younger people who may not currently have the funds to invest to get their foot in the door. I think if you can match with someone that has the deposit, you're a younger guy that cannot really see himself getting the money anytime soon. It can be a good way to get you put in the market and into a good quality property. And that's next. I'm Tyron Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Delving further into the property deal he set up before, involving him and another investor, Gray explains the details behind the joint venture property purchase he made around 10 years ago. In, in the deal I originally did, effectively that deal could be done anytime. So whether it was a property, say 10 years ago or one today, effectively the numbers are, are pretty much the same. In that, just like you are saying before, there's some people there trying to go and find the bargain. But for a lot of investors, it's not about that. It's the slow and steady wins the race type thing. And so, again, is we could buy a property now for a million dollars that's effectively worth a million or in a boom market, it could be worth 1.1. And sure, you haven't made any money straight away. So it's not sexy. It's not cool. It's not going to be front page of the paper as the deal of the week. But when you look back in 10 or 20 years and it's doubled to, say, 2 million and then 4 million, then that's where the money's really made. And so... You could always go to, say, an Alexandria, Zetlin. You could go to somewhere where there's 10,000 brand new apartments and you could probably save 30%. And you could say, yeah, look, we did a deal. We saved 30% on what it sold for last year. Um, we put two people in. It looks really, really cool. But suddenly you've got a, an investment that's a yo-yo that's suddenly super volatile that something could go wrong straight away. So the deal I did back in um, uh, kind of, 10 or 15 years ago or whatever the number was, was I think we bought a property for around, oh look, from memory about 300,000 and it was a house and land package and we had to do a brand brand spanking new one because um, the, the other investor was from, uh, from the UK so they could only buy brand new and I think we sold it, I don't know, six, seven years later for about 450 or something like that. So effectively we made say 150 grand um, we then got 6% each on our money and then we split the capital growth. So we bo both made money on the deal. Now, my learning from that deal was that rather than buy something like the house and land package where it went up maybe 50% in six or seven years, Sydney effectively had gone up by 100%. So my warning was probably the worst deal I've done was that kind of deal because I made 50% of my money rather than 100%. But 
the positive of that was that effectively I hadn't put any capital down. So effectively, all I put is time in, into uh, into the deal. So again, it's all part of the learning process. But the reason I'm thinking about it now is say I had one and a half million dollars. What I've already got a $15 million portfolio, which I can control myself and I can do whatever I want with. But I was thinking if, if I've got one and a half million, I'd almost now, because it's so hard to borrow, is put 10, 150 grand deposits down to then go and buy effectively a half share in 10, $1 million units in Sydney. And so then effectively in seven to 10 years time, even though I can't control that in the meantime, because I've got a joint venture partner, I've then suddenly got $5 million worth of property effectively, but actually having zero debt with it. And so I think this can be a really good strategy to effectively diversify still within blue chip property, but some you control 100% and are on the mortgage, and then some that you don't have any, uh, any liability on the mortgage at all. While drawing a lot of people together, to pull the funds for a property seems like a good idea, however... Gray shares that there is a limit to how many people he'd involved in these projects. I wouldn't fund them all together. So the whole idea is, is if I normally go and get a mortgage, I need to put down 20% deposit and 5% cost. So on a million dollar property, I'm putting down 250. Whereas if I go and find someone that earns, say, 100 grand a year, and they could get away with the 5, 7 or 10% deposit, plus then the 5% for stamp duty and legals, effectively I could get into that million dollar property for maybe somewhere between 10 and 15%. But effectively you don't want to pull lots of people together because the only reason that guy's getting a 95% mortgage is because he's he or, or her has got no other debts and effectively they've got a high income. And also then they're going to get all of the um, negative gearing into their name as well. So effectively I want to put that property into their name so they get all the tax benefits and then the bank isn't interested in what I'm doing because I'm not party to it. And then effectively, you have a separate second mortgage or caveat over the property so that the other guy can't refinance or can't resell it. And so effectively, by having that, you need the bank's permission to do that. But the bank should be happy because effectively, what I've done is I've lent them the deposit. They're not paying interest on that until we sell it. So that shouldn't affect their serviceability. So I'd definitely rather do 10 individual deals like that because, again, is even if one or two went bad, it's not the end of the world. Whereas if I built up a $10 million fund and had 10 kind of separate uh, income earners in there, it would just be a, a complicated, uh, absolute mess and, and a headache in the future. In our current market, Gray adds that the process is still similar when it comes to getting loans and putting these deals through. So still, still basically through the process. So we've basically got lawyers coming, coming together with the agreements. Then the brokers have effectively asked a couple of banks in principle if they're okay, which they said they were. And so then it's a case of putting those two together to then go and say, well, okay, yeah, other banks going to be happy with this legal agreement. Gray also explains the advantages of going through a professional to buy property is the due diligence process that professionals go through prior to buying a property and the added security of holding the property over a long term. So that effectively de-risks it because if you get two, say, first home buyers, one with an income, one with a deposit, going off to go and buy a property, and they go and buy the wrong property in the wrong area for the wrong price, and then suddenly one of them loses their job, then you've actually got a serious mess and a lot of money lost. So what is the actual process involved for those interested to take up this offer? 
Look, um, the main thing is is just drop us a line either to uh, to Jack or to me, and um, yeah, well, effectively, just like we would with any client, is it's really just sitting down to make sure that they really know what they're doing, to see where they're kind of headed, and to make sure that they understand the risks and rewards of doing these kind of things. So, doing a joint venture is not a perfect scenario. There's definitely risks and rewards, and there's definitely examples of it not working together. And so even when we go through the processes, both sides of the uh, equation will need to get their own independent advice. So ideally, you want to sit down with your accountant or financial planner to make sure that you really understand what the downsides are. Because the bottom line is, is say you go and buy a property, and let's say it doesn't grow in value for three or four years, and let's say the mortgage partner doesn't then go and um, pay all the negative gearing, you've suddenly got a mess on your hands. So that's why it's got to be done very, very carefully. What's the kind of time frame you'd be looking at as a minimum to hold these type of properties for an investor? Look, I think sort of you need to be looking at a seven to ten year frame plus. I mean, if, you, if you're going to hold forever, which is when you should buy a property, you should want to hold property forever anyway. It shouldn't really matter as long as you have an end goal in mind. But I think another benefit to these sort of things is I've got a lot of friends, especially the younger generation, that have decent incomes but just don't have the money. So I think if you can match with someone that has the deposit, you're a younger guy that cannot really see himself getting the money anytime soon. It can be a good way to get your foot in the market and into a good quality property. For someone younger looking to buy and hold a property for one property cycle, how much would they need to invest in on an ongoing basis to keep the investment afloat? Generally, if you spend a million dollars a year, that's probably negative by sort of ten to fifteen thousand a year, which you're looking at sort of two hundred to three hundred dollars a week. Um, but look, you don't have to purchase a million dollar property either. You you want a, a good quality property, obviously, because if if you're looking for capital growth, then that's what you want to find. But you don't need to spend a million dollars. Acknowledging that saving up this kind of money could prove difficult for some, Henderson shares the beauty of their two person strategy and why it can help those trying to get their foot in the market. You're not sort of looking for someone that's not looking to buy a property. I'm talking about if someone wants to buy a property, obviously to save that 10% deposit on even half a million dollars, $50,000, it's not an easy thing to do, especially when you've got um, you know, life getting in the way. So, I mean, if you can match up with a partner that has the deposit and you have a great income, it could be a great way to get into a better quality property. While the prospect of a changing market is one thing that generally holds people back, Gray shares how the right investment decisions in a quality property the market conditions doesn't always play such a big part in your success. I was going to say, look, who knows what's around the corner? So the main things with these, uh, with, with property investing is no one knows the future. And I find most of the people sit on the fence and they're using any excuse not to make that decision. Whereas generally, if you look at any successful property investor that's made a lot of money from property, is they're just action takers and they just get on with it and do it. Um, I mean, for myself, I started investing at 22. I had no knowledge whatsoever. Um, I didn't study for three or four years. There was no books, seminars or anything like that because uh, I'm obviously really old and so it's got it back in the, uh, in the early 90s and stuff. And so even I think Rich Dad, Poor Dad wasn't around in those days. But the main thing is, is at some point, you've just got to get in the market. And so if you can do it yourself, great. If you can't, then you need to think about joint venturing versus sitting on the fence for another three or four years. And so just like Jack says is you can start in the market by buying a three or 400 grand property or you could get into the market knowing 50% of a million dollar unit or an 800 grand property. But all I found in my property investing years is if you buy quality, it's generally pretty hard to go wrong.
So just like where we had the like the co-vestors, the BRICXs, the Domacoms, a lot of their strategy is, is even if you had 10 grand, wouldn't you rather own 1% of a million dollar property rather than buy some sheep station out in the middle of nowhere that no one really wants? So stick with quality, even if you've got a smaller percentage, and generally it's, it's hard to go too far wrong. And I think also when you're saying uh, you never know how long a piece of string is, mate, all the fundamentals are there. We have population growth. People want to live in these desirable locations. Um, look, for me, I'm young. I'm in the accumulation stage of my portfolio. I'm quite highly leveraged. But the numbers don't worry me. When I read the newspaper and see the headlines, all I need to know is I can cash flow that property every week for the next however many years it's going to take. And you just have to know that in, if you look at you know the past, these things happen, and as long as you can cash flow the property, you have nothing to worry about. Giving listeners a few tips, Gray cements the importance of legalities in joint ventures and how investors can pull together this strategy themselves. Like with all of these things, as Jack said, is and, and like I've said through the thing, is is people can go off and do this themselves. Is the best partners are probably your parents to start with, and a lot of the time the parents won't even uh, want the money back. They'll uh, they won't give it to you as a gift necessarily straight on. But suddenly when they're older and they own part of your property, then uh, quite often they don't want the money back. Then going with brothers and sisters is always a good thing. Then maybe going to colleagues and then maybe going to strangers to then try and uh, match everything up. But the main thing is, is before you do anything, you've got to go through the legal things. Everyone thinks it's all going to be fine, especially when they're doing it with family. But you've got to get financial advice. And again, like, like I said, with the first joint venture I did, I assume the worst case scenarios were opposite ends of the world, we're not even talking, what happens? And so this is when the agreement that you sign should dictate, well, what happens if this person doesn't pay? What happens if this doesn't pers- person doesn't pay? What if the property sells for a loss? How do we value it? All of those things you need to try and work through. And so look, just one of the advantages of, of using someone like us is if we've already been through the experience, we're more likely to find those kind of things and be able to preempt it. But there's, there's nothing to stop people going off and doing themselves. Thank you to Chris Gray and Jack Henderson, our guests on this episode of Property Investory. If you want to hear more about their stories, then visit our website at propertyinveststory.com.au.